This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, my partner Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, go through one of the more fascinating points in the very, very long history of cannabis. I have no prior knowledge of the story we're about to hear. Bean has written and researched it, and he's going to be telling it to me and to you. We're going to smoke some weed. We're going to have some tea. We're going to have a good time. Bean, what do you got going on? Oh, I've got a story for you today that is on the grand scale about fucking with the man, and it stars somebody who is not just a weed hero and not just a media hero, but for both of us, I think a weed media hero. Oh, I'm stoked to hear about it. I'm about to twist up a J here. Let me get started. Yeah, if you're not uh, quite there at home, now is a wonderful time to hit pause. Do what my partner is doing. Roll something up, pack something up, split your blunt. Because if you're ready and we're ready, I think it's time for another great moment in weed history. Smoke media. <sighs> All righty. So, Bean, uh, I've got this weed ground up here. Uh, why don't you get us started? In 1967, New York Times Magazine published an article titled The Hashberry is the Capital of the Hippies. It was written by a young journalist who was not just reporting on the summer of love. So this is 1967. Right. In real time. But he is experiencing it full throttle. He's right in the thick of the action. Interesting. So uh, he's in San Francisco and Hashberry is uh, a word for Ashbury, I suppose, like the, the neighborhood, right? The street in San Francisco. Yeah, well, it's these two streets that intersect, Haight and Ashbury in San Francisco. And this is like the center of psychedelic culture, center of weed culture. At one time, the Grateful Dead are living there in a communal house. Janis Joplin lives there. The Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix. It's like all happening. This is the summer of love. And this journalist gets like his first big break to write a story about it. Gotcha. Uh, wow. What a fun assignment. Yeah. Let me give you a little line from the story and then maybe you've got to guess who we're talking about. I think we're getting close to guest time, but let me Let's read this it. one first. Great. He says, this neighborhood is the orgiastic tip of a great psychedelic iceberg. Mm. Marijuana is everywhere in Hashbury. People smoke it on the sidewalks, in donut shops, sitting in parked cars, or just lounging on the grass in Golden Gate Park. It's okay, who would this be? It's 67. This journalist's brief residency in San Francisco kind of retains the afterglow of a golden era for the rest of his life. This is like, you know, people who I talk to a lot of old hippies, you know, personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of those golden eras in history that I mm. think in 100 years people will still look back on or yeah. 500 years. You know, we had an episode where we talked about Paris in the 20s. Yeah. 
right. and what that meant. And this is like the psychedelic version of that. And this journalist is, like I said, you know. Is it Hunter S. Thompson? It is Hunter hey! S. Thompson. <laughs> Amazing. You know what's so interesting is to hear about the beginning of Hunter S. Thompson's love affair with psychedelia and with this culture. Because I feel like every time I've read a book or seen a movie about him, he's already in the thick of it. So to hear him coming into that world, I mean, I can't wait to hear the details of this story. Definitely read the guy's work, really fascinated by it, but I don't know much about the man himself, and I know you do, Bean, so I'm stoked to hear about it from you. Yeah, he's a brilliant writer, a brilliant thinker, and sort of, you know, this cultural idea of him that we're left with now comes from, you know, honestly, a lot of people just watching the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas who've never even really read his work or Mm. just this idea of, like, the ultimate crazy wild party legend. And what gets lost is somebody who cared deeply about journalism, who cared deeply about this country and Mm -hmm. saw a lot of the problems that we're facing now coming and somebody who cared really about weed culture. Absolutely. And I think it's... As time has gone on, the association that people make with psychedelics or a lot of the drugs that we're talking about in this era is as party drugs, as recreational drugs, not as what they were seen as at the time, which is mind-expanding drugs, consciousness-altering drugs that will allow you to see the world in a more compassionate way, in a more detailed way, uh, in a better way. Yeah, I'll say better, too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, speaking of, I think, uh... Here we go. Here we come, (laughs) altered state of mind. (laughs) Yeah, here's the hunter. So, we'll follow his journey a little before we get to our specific great moment, which is a killer one. While he's still living in San Francisco in Hashbury, at the same time he's experiencing the summer of love, He's also writing his first book. Do you do you know what it was? No, what was the first one? He wrote a book about the Hells Angels. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've actually read a bunch of that book. Not the entire thing. I got it from my friend Joe in college. And that is a harrowing story. I mean, it really is a, a crazy experience. Yeah, and you see his style as a writer and his insights, but he hasn't really gone full gonzo. He's reporting in this wild environment, you know, he's fully, as they say, embedded with the angels. Oh, yeah. He's involved in their activities. I mean, he's he's very much there. He's almost too involved by the end. Um, And so one of the things he realizes is just like the hippies, a lot of the Hell's Angels smoked weed, in fact, so much that they had a special patch that they made that you could put on your jacket that would identify you to other Hell's Angels as a as a weed dude. I'm going to say acquaintance of the podcast, Hells Angels. (laughs) I don't want to presume friendship. I don't want to say friendship. Down with some stuff you do. Not down with some stuff you do. Not sure if you're down with what we do, (laughs) but, you know, here's the fig leaf just in case. Certainly uh, have no problems with you if you don't have any problems with us. We're cool. We're cool. Um, But what he also realizes is that while the hippies are smoking weed and taking psychedelics and they're looking for sort of these consciousness-raising, mind-expanding effects, he says the the angels, quote, gobble drugs like victims of famine turned loose on a rare smorgasbord uh, (laughs) until they achieved a screaming delirium. There's that poetry, (laughs) right? (laughs) In one sentence, he, he kind of describes this bacchanal, you know? Yeah, and and for the rest of his life as a reporter and as a person, he is kind of 
looking at these two extremes of the political spectrum. You have on the one hand, like free love utopians. You know what I mean? This hippie ideal that we can use these substances, uh, cannabis, psychedelics, to break through everything that's keeping society square and and top down and 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 in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And then this other world of these really far right authoritarians. You know, at their heart, the angels are rebels, but they're also a repressive force in society. You know, in when the Vietnam War protests really heat up. There were hell's angels out there beating hippies because they supported the war, you know. And so this is from the book Hell's Angels. He says that same venom that the angels are spewing around in public, a lot of people are just keeping bottled up in private. Mm. And I think we see that kind of coming out in mass now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And now we're at a time where the media and in some cases the president himself is goading people to tap into that negativity, you know what I mean? And and to bring that, uh, the dormant hatred in their hearts into reality, to manifest that. And that's a freaky thing. It's really interesting that Thompson saw this at very, very early stages. Yeah, I mean, even more foresight in this next line, he says, the people who are most affected by technological obsolescence, so like the idea that We're all going to be replaced by robots or, you know, there's going to be shitty jobs everywhere. He already sees this coming and he says the people who are going to be most negatively affected by it are the ones least capable of understanding the reason for it. So the venom builds up much quicker Mm. and it feeds on their ignorance. He stops hanging out and blazing weed with the Hells Angels when they... Oh, yeah. What happens? They kill a guy? (laughs) No, they beat the crap out of him. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. They beat the crap out of him. So this is part of that him getting a little too involved with his subjects. Uh, He crosses the line and they beat the shit out of him. Yeah, there's a a really interesting TV appearance where he kind of goes back and forth with one of the angels and they debate how this beatdown happened and who was right or wrong. Why did they thump him? All right, this man here, you got into a man's personal argument. That's a not right line. No, no, I it ain't. That's afternoon, and oh, go ahead and tell All it. Right. Tell this, this is my side of what happened. Okay, you weren't there, so why don't you preface it with that? This is what this is what happened. Okay, and you, and you see if this isn't right. Junkie George is beating his old lady. I remember Junkie that. George, right. Junkie George's dog. I want you to this. Junkie George's dog bit him, right? Here came the peacemaker, right? He doesn't have a patch on. He isn't in the club, you know. And Junkie George is stiff. You walked, you walked right up to him and you said, only a punk beats his wife and dog. <laughs> These were your words. Now, you said it. You said it to this man. And you backed up. You finished and he said, Hunter, you want, you want some of this. And you said no. But you got it anyway. And when he hit you, three or four others of them hit you too. He stops the reporting on the Hells Angels, but he never stops reporting on what he calls the drug culture. Mm-hmm. Weed people. Yeah. Us. <laughs> yeah. And he's one of the first people to really do that, you know? And represent those cultures and those people in media that's read by squares. You know what I mean? Like actually communicating something about the mores of hippie society to non-hippie society. Yeah. He becomes a really important conduit between those two worlds. But he's never pretends to be... He never pretends to be objective about anything. In in essence, Gonzo is all about destroying that fallacy. 
yeah. that such a thing exists. Um, and he certainly doesn't try to be, quote, objective about weed. Mm. He says, I have always loved marijuana. It has been a source of joy and comfort to me for many years. I think of it as a basic staple of life, along with beer and ice and grapefruits. And millions of Americans agree with me. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Not on the grapefruits thing too much. Too tart. But <laughs> I gotta say that I totally agree with the cannabis thing. And also, like, that idea that, look, this is a guy who consumes pretty hard substances pretty regularly. That shit takes a toll. Cannabis is probably the one thing in his psychedelic diet that's kind of counteracting some of the beleaguerment that all that drug use can actually uh, have on you. Yeah, and, and, and going back into these earlier days, you know, he is much more experimenting with grass, as they might have called it, and, and psychedelics. And a lot of the harder drugs and a lot of the problematic outcomes that come with that come later in his life and, uh, and honestly come at a point where his heart is sort of broken by this country. Um, and we're going to get into kind of a central story of that. But but when we think of him as a younger person, as a writer, participant in all of these things, I think it's important to keep that distinction that like he is kind of a pretty serious guy. He loves his weed. He loves his psychedelics, but he's not the sort of out of control person that, you know, even is depicted in in Fear and Loathing. Right, right, right. Good to know, because for a lot of people, as you said, that is the only idea, the only sense you get of the man is from that movie, and he's, like, drinking DMT through a funnel. (laughs) (laughs) We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. We've got this guy... Hunter S. Thompson, he's a young journalist. The world is his oyster. What does he do next? His interest in drugs never uh, wavers, (laughs) (laughs) somewhat fatally in the end. But he also gets really interested in politics. And so uh, this is a mini great moment within a great moment. 1970, an idealistic young attorney named Keith Stroop Hey, Keith Stroop. <laughs> and I'm here to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with the responsible use of marijuana by adults, regardless of why you smoke it. And it should be none of the government's business whether we smoke or why we smoke. Medical cannabis legend, cannabis legend. We'll definitely talk about him more on the show. I'm sure he, he definitely deserves his own episode, but glad to see he's making an appearance. Yeah, a uh, friend of uh, both of ours, big time friend of the podcast. If yeah. you love weed, he's a friend of yours, whether you know him or not. Big um, time. So he started the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Normal. Yeah, and you can go to normal.org for more information. Um, but in 1970, Keith is just this young guy. He really loves weed. He really fucking hates the government's war on weed. And he also sees a place for himself to become essentially the first ever lobbyist for legalization and to create this grassroots national organization in support of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So he doesn't really have any money and, you know, he doesn't have much support. He's just founded the organization. And uh, in 1972, to try to drum up some, you know, some juice for normal, he gets in his Volkswagen camper and he drives it down to the Democratic National Convention in Miami where there's going to be all these protests and and Mm -hmm. demonstrations and just politicians and everything's going on. Yeah. Uh, And he is sitting in the bleachers watching a speech 
and he starts to smell something. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm sure you've seen it. I did a video once uh, for Vice that was, we went yeah. to Hunter Thompson's house. It was a weed dinner at his house. Yes, yeah. and Keith Stroop was the guest of honor, mm -hmm. and he told this story. I was at the Democratic National Convention in Miami in 1972. Normal was only a year and a half old, and the first day that I was at the convention, I smelled marijuana. Some, somebody under the bleachers where we were sitting it was clearly marijuana. And I I looked down and I saw this gangling figure that I had never met, but I had seen pictures of him in Rolling Stone at that point. And I thought, son of a bitch, that has to be Hunter Thompson. <laughs> and I went up to him and introduced myself and said, I just started a marijuana lobby called Normal. I thought maybe we should get to know each other. And of course, he reached out to Joint and said, here, you want some marijuana? <laughs> and we formed a friendship that lasted uh, till his death. Oh, wow, that's incredible. So I didn't know that Hunter S. Thompson was involved with Normal at all. That's that's pretty amazing. Uh, and the fact that he actually met Keith Stroop right at the inception of the organization, that's pretty fucking incredible. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a really heady moment in, in Hunter Thompson's life. This is now 1972, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas has just come out in book form after it was first serialized in Rolling Stone. Right. And so he's just becoming a celebrity. Um, the book is a sensation, mm -hmm. and now he's like young and famous for the first time, but right on the spot, he's like, I'll, I'll help you. I'll be your big supporter, and he goes to normal conventions and gives speeches. Oh, amazing. And the, but the biggest thing he does is he introduces Keith to all the people that he knows who are secret weed heads in politics. So Keith Stroop suddenly has the inside edge via Hunter S. Thompson to make normal a real thing. Yeah, he, he gives him all these contacts, but he also like comes to the normal conventions, which by now he's like the biggest weed celebrity really. You know, there's like Cheech and Chong and Hunter Thompson. So I'll read to you Keith's description of Hunter giving a speech at the 1977 normal convention. Gotcha. When Hunter's turn to speak came, he stood up at the podium and barked, I don't know what all you people are so happy about when I can't find any marijuana. What the fuck is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> Way to get the crowd on your side right off the bat. Now, that's great, man. As they say, open with a joke. So that's the background of this speech where he's saying, you know, what the fuck is going on? I can't get any marijuana. What are you so happy about? Keith says... Of course, I'd been up in Hunter's hotel room the night before, and he had way more weed stashed away than even he could use. <laughs> but nevertheless, he continued, all the progress that you're talking about doesn't mean shit if marijuana smokers can't get good marijuana. Hey, that is the goddamn truth. Ain't it the truth? Still today. Absolutely, man. And, and... Keith says, you know, a, a bunch of the people in the audience, well, what do you think they would do at that point? Throw a bunch of weed at him? <laughs> they start pelting him with joints. Pelting? I've never heard of someone being pelted with weed before. I mean, I would take that. You know what I mean? If someone was like, do you want to be pelted with joints? I'd be like, yeah, for a second, yes. <laughs> do you want to be stoned with stones or do you want to be stoned with joints? Pelted with joints. Jointed. <laughs> Pelted, as they call it. Uh, so he's sufficiently jointed. He's getting pelted with joints. But Keith says the point he was making in only the way he could was that as long as anybody is getting arrested, you know, it's premature to celebrate any of the victories that you have fully. 
All right, so we're going to take a little break in a minute, and then we will get to this incredible campaign to subvert the system and fuck the man that constitutes the heart of today's great moment. And we'll hear about that in just a minute. Awesome. We'll be right back. Smoke weedia. We're talking about Hunter S. Thompson, weed legend, media legend, weed media legend. When we left off, he was about to do something really, really big. Bean, where are we at? Yeah, so like I said, you know, this is like his most outlandish prank, mm-hmm. but it's also like his most serious attempt to shake up the system and usher in this new world of freedom and weed for all. In 1967... When he got his first royalty check from Hell's Angels, uh, the book, he used it to buy a small cabin out in the woods outside Aspen, Colorado, which is, you know, where I was when I shot that video. Right. Okay, gotcha. Hunter S. Thompson's house. So when he moves there, Aspen is already sort of like a magnet for writers, artists, thinkers, and misfits of all kind. And he loves having a place where he can get away from his crazy life. You know, when he's out on the road reporting, it's gonzo 24-7. Yeah. But he's got this place to come back to and rest and actually do his writing work. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, the local authorities in Aspen are real reactionaries. And when along with him, there's this just big influx of hippies coming to Aspen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to, you know, they'll take jobs as cooks or ski instructors or they're just like bumming around. Yeah. The sheriff's department <laughs> is like, fuck this. Fuck hippies. We got a nice, quiet ski community. Uh <laughs> That's a big Lebowski. Yeah. <laughs> Stay out of Malibu, deadbeat! Keep your ugly fucking gold bricking ass out of my beach community. <laughs> uh, so they are like, we are going to get rid of these hippies by any means necessary. And there's all of these charges of false arrest and police brutality. Fucking fascists. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, man. And this is a time when having long hair and looking like a hippie not only could get you like a vagrancy arrest or a drug bust for weed, it could just get you your ass kicked by the cops or just by locals. Um, And so this is all happening in Aspen right when he moves there. And it's not just the heads and the hippies that are getting fucked with. A year after Hunter Thompson moved to Aspen, the sheriff's department searched every locker in Aspen High School for weed based on one anonymous tip. Oh, my God. Yeah. Sheriff Whitmire himself, and I've seen a picture of this, in a 10-gallon hat with a pistol strapped to his hip and a lit cigarette dangling from his lips (laughs) went through the girls' purses one by one. Guess what they found? Uh, some makeup and mm-hmm. <laughs> loose change. Let me rephrase it. Guess what they didn't find? Weed. None. Of course not. Th- that's crazy uh, that they wasted all that time uh, for an anonymous tip for looking for a bag of weed. Like, literally, if you called any police station in America today and were like, one of the kids at the high school 
has some weed, the cop would be like, yeah, no fucking shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was this weird moral battle that these motherfuckers were, you know, th- thought they were engaged in. Yeah, and it's about intimidation. The town sees all these hippies flooding in. The squares are freaking out. Their first concern is, what about my kid? The cops, the sheriff is out there bragging about this, you know, that he searched all the lockers and all the purses and didn't find anything. And they're like, see, we're doing our jobs. And obviously this does not sit well with not just Hunter Thompson, but a lot of people in Aspen. And so this open harassment of undesirables by the cops in Aspen would continue unchecked until a 29-year-old lawyer named Joe Edwards filed the first civil rights case in Colorado history against the Aspen Police Department for discriminatory enforcement of ordinances that prohibited vagrancy, hitchhiking, trespassing, and blocking the sidewalk. So they're, like, using these petty laws. Which is really what they do. You know, they use uh, quality-of-life crimes, right? Uh, And They've been doing this in cities across America forever. It's, It's a way to give a cop a tool... Uh, with which he can marginalize a specific group of people that he doesn't like for whatever reason and justify it, right? And cannabis has been one of those tools for decades since the beginning of Prohibition. That's what it was there for. It was there so that a cop could say, you smell like weed, empty your pockets. I mean, they were doing this shit stop and frisk, uh, you know, in New York, Philadelphia very, very recently where a cop could say, your eyes look red. You know, it, I remember uh, reading it in, in one of the actual ordinances. It was like, appears to have recently extinguished a marijuana cigarette. I'm like, motherfucker, I always appear to have recently extinguished a marijuana cigarette. That's what I do. Even when you're smoking a marijuana cigarette. Yeah, you know what? I recently extinguished one. It's sitting right there in the ashtray next to me. <laughs> so... This lawsuit works. Joe Edwards sues for all of this police harassment and wins. And this really starts to change uh, the scene in Aspen. The cops can't just get away with fucking with people. And then late one night, Joe Edwards is chilling at home, probably puffing a J. And the phone rings. And who do you think's on the other end? Utter S. Dobson. Yeah, a man renowned for his late-night phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he seems like the kind of guy who'd call you at, like, 2 a.m. and have a lot of shit to say. So there's actually a famous story where Jimmy Buffett, like, let Hunter Thompson crash at his house for a couple of weeks, uh-huh. and he ran up a phone bill in the five digits. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just famous among his friends for he'd call you at 3 in the morning at whatever... Uh, frequency he was humming at, and uh, you pretty much had to take that call. So Joe Edwards gets the 3 a.m. phone call for Hunter S. Thompson. What do you think he wants? Uh, He wants to help him uh, fuck with the the shitty local cops in Aspen. Well, yeah. And all the way to the top, he says, uh, you got to run for mayor. What? He tells Joe Edwards to run for mayor? Yeah, he's got all the support of all the freaks in Aspen because of this lawsuit. But he's also a lawyer, you know, and he's got a little power base of his own in the town. And he says, hey, look, there's a lot of us. If we can get these people from outside the system to vote because we'll run a campaign they believe in, we can fucking take over this town. Holy shit. 
Yeah, what better way to fuck with the local cops than by becoming the mayor? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, shit. So, okay, great. So what happens? Well, the Edwards for Mayor campaign loses by six votes. Oh, man. And it's one of those deals where, like, oh, if the election had been two weeks later. and oh. But it gives rise to this freak power movement. They see, like, holy shit, we almost really did this. A lot of people, like you know, didn't even vote or get involved because they thought, oh, that's, this could never happen, and they see six six votes. So yeah, yeah. they decide next time they're going to run an even wilder campaign. Hunter S. Thompson for sheriff. What? That actually <laughs> happened in Aspen? Absolutely it happened. They even shot a campaign ad, Thompson for Sheriff. It features him riding his motorcycle through the mountains outside Aspen. Hunter Thompson is a moralist posing as an immoralist. Nixon is an immoralist disguised as a moralist. There'll be thieves and auto wrecks in Aspen whoever gets elected. But Hunter represents something wholly alien to the other candidates for sheriff. Ideas and a sympathy towards the young, generous, grass-oriented society, which is making the only serious effort to face the technological nightmare we have created. Wow, so he actually calls out that he is cool with cannabis culture. You know, grass-oriented. He's down. Uh, He's got my vote for sure. Yeah, and I've never really known what my orientation was. <laughs> but and I believe, now we know. I believe I'm grass-oriented. We're grass-oriented. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, his big issues are issues that are all coming to a head now and are still completely unresolved in our society. Police brutality, the environment, inequality, and legalized weed. Mm-hmm. And so among his campaign promises... One. Rip up all city streets with jackhammers and sod the streets at once. (laughs) (laughs) So like a return to, you know, to tribalism, to our roots. That's great. Two, change the name Aspen to Fat City. (laughs) (laughs) And this is to quote, prevent greed heads, land rapers, and other human jackals from capitalizing on the name Aspen. Oh, wow. Holy shit. So he's definitely got some radical ideas for Aspen. We're just getting started. And it's also so Aspen, rich people live there, but they kind of thought of themselves as like lefty rich people. But what he sees happening is all of these real estate developers coming in and they're going to put in subdivisions and they're going to push up housing prices any way they can until people can't really afford to live in Aspen, Mm. which always had this ski bum culture and this sort of bohemian underbelly that used to coexist pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as these people are coming in, who he calls greed heads, and I think that's like one of the greatest phrasings he ever really came up with is mm-hmm. like weed heads versus greed heads. Like, oh, so he, he coined the term greed head? To the best of my knowledge. Oh, cool. I definitely think so. And uh, all the local politics is corrupt. Mm-hmm. And and these guys are, you know, paying off politicians to get their way to do these environmentally fucked up things. Mm-hmm. And he takes a public health harm reduction oriented approach to drug law enforcement. It will be the general philosophy of the sheriff's office that no drug worth taking should be sold for money. My first act as sheriff will be to install on the courthouse lawn a set of stocks in order to punish dishonest dope dealers 
in a proper public fashion. <laughs> okay, great. So not the honest ones. The ones who are actually honest, they're free to do their thing. But anybody who's trying to sell somebody like a bag of oregano or whatever, they're going in the stocks. Or if you're charging too much or, yeah, any kind of a ripoff. He continues. It will be the general philosophy of the sheriff's office that no drug worth taking should be sold for money. He says this will establish a unique and very human ambiance in the Aspen or fat city, (laughs) drug culture. Pending. And so he says the only realistic approach to drug laws is to make life in this town very ugly for all profiteers in drugs and any other field. Right. So he basically wants to turn Aspen back into like a medieval village. You know what I mean? (laughs) Which is kind of (laughs) awesome. He wants to rip up the roads. He wants to ban the cops. He wants to change the name of it to Fat City. I mean, those are pretty radical promises, but uh, he's still got my vote. (laughs) I think he's got my vote more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so this is like, to me, the most surreal moment within like a a Russian dolls of surreal moments that leads up to this. He has a public debate with Sheriff Whitmire, his opponent. Oh, my God. Who is also the same guy who went to Aspen High School and searched all the lockers with the purses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Vote for and elect Carol Whitmire for our sheriff. And so during this debate, Hunter Thompson was asked if he thought cannabis possession should remain a felony for first-time offenders. It was a felony at this time. Yeah, one bust for weed at this time in Colorado could really, really fuck your shit up. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Colorado is the first place, along with Washington State, to break through on legalization and was the early pioneer mm-hmm. in at least state regulation of medical cannabis. I think the roots of all of that really come down to this uh, campaign for sheriff because oh. uh, we'll get to it. But this thing blows up into a big media spectacle pretty soon. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay, cool. So what happens at this debate? Ah, yeah. So they ask him, uh, which I would say is a pretty softball question for uh, Hunter Thompson. Do you you think weed should still be a felony? Yeah, I know, right? Shout out to whoever phrased the question that way. Friend of the podcast. (laughs) Sneaky (laughs) friend of weed. You should have been, you could have been like, do you think that people should be eating babies after they smoke weed (laughs) in so-called fat? City. <laughs> yeah. But instead, uh, they lob him up this uh, nice little leading question here. And I'm guessing he's going to knock it out of the park. Yeah. He says the current laws on marijuana were passed in a time of mass hysteria and total ignorance. Yep. This single law has made felons out of an entire generation. Yep. The young people now look upon law enforcement as their bitter enemy. Yep. They consider cops to be narrow-minded racists who send out informants to spy on them and set them up for arrests, which can result in fantastic jail sentences. That's still a yup. <laughs> Marijuana laws are one of the reasons that that is uh, engendered this lack of respect that the uh, that cops complain about all over the country. When you get a whole generation that grows up as felons. And they know the law is ridiculous, and they're told all this gibberish about it. Uh, it uh, drives you crazy and makes your brain soft and your feet fall off. And, uh, even the police know it's a silly law. 
So yeah, old Sheriff No Weed Whitmire uh, <laughs> sees things very differently than Hunter Thompson. It's a, you know, they say, oh, this election is a clear choice, but I don't think there's ever been a clearer choice for people to make between uh, Whitmire and Thompson. Yeah, seriously, truly two extremes on mm. the local political spectrum, <laughs> on the on the world political yeah. spectrum, <laughs> and uh, so. Like I said, the campaign just starts to catch fire. All these people get involved who've never been a part of politics. People who are a part of the town just start to see, oh, this guy's serious and he's got some good ideas. But a lot of people still think it's a joke or a prank. Mm. So he takes out uh, an ad in the Aspen Times, and this is what Hunter Thompson puts in his ad. Yeah. Yes, this is indeed a weird twist in my life, but despite the natural horror of seeing myself as the main pig... I think it has to be done, or at least tried. <laughs> yeah, man, that's crazy. He's like literally, uh, you know, uh, in order to defeat him, he has to become him face off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's pretty fucking insane, but he's willing to do it. And as he realizes that this can really happen, they start putting out his campaign and Hunter Thompson these really detailed policy statements and even like, they print in the newspaper, like, organizational flow charts of how the sheriff's department is going to function and how these oh, reforms wow. are going to work and how, essentially, they're going to make the sheriff's department accountable to the people rather than the other way around. Huh. This is all detailed in a book I definitely want to shout out called The Battle of Aspen. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, like, coffee table book. And in it, there's also these what they call wall posters. So he's tapped into the artistic community, and he's a brilliant writer. Um, so they make all their own campaign materials, oh, uh, wow. newsletters, and, you know, some of them are crazy and aimed at the freaks, mm-hmm. and some of them still making the same points, just to different uh, Audiences. ears. Yeah, sure. yeah, and then some are these really detailed plans, like, look, I'm serious, and this is exactly what I'm going to do. Mm. Uh, but these these posters that they put up around Aspen uh, have slogans like, uh, for example, today's pig is tomorrow's bacon. <laughs> Thompson for sheriff. <laughs> oh my god, that is fucking brilliant. Yeah, solid campaign. And uh just as sort of the capper, Hunter Thompson shaved his head bald. Any idea why he would do that? No, what's the symbolism there? He did it so that during that debate he could refer to Sheriff Whitmire as quote, my long-haired opponent. <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. You turn him into a hippie. Use his own slur against him. Brilliant. Yeah, and uh, it sort of gives him this, like, wild look, you know, almost like a dystopian, futuristic, half-robot hippie drug sheriff. Um, And then the other thing he does is he writes... Now, he's Hunter Thompson, as we know him. He's he's well-known, right? And he writes an article in Rolling Stone called the Battle of Aspen about his run for sheriff. And uh, that is what makes it, blows it up into a huge national story. So he's still reporting for Rolling Stone at this time, and he turns this entire experience into a story. Yeah, and the story comes out, like, say, a month or a little more before the elections. So. Wow. Holy shit. So that's, like, the best promo he could possibly get at this time to be sheriff. And does it upset the locals or is it just like give him a massive surge in support? It electrifies his base of freaks and brings all these new people in. 
but at the same time, it squarifies the squares to, uh, like, squared. Even more (laughs) squarish. And they realize, fuck, this is like a threat to our fucking way of life. The Washington Post uh, runs a headline, uh, hippies may elect a sheriff. And then the New York Times uh, the next day runs, freak power candidate may be the next sheriff in placid Aspen, Colorado. Holy shit. Freak power, huh? Mm -hmm. I like that, man. You know what? If the freak power movement came back, I would totally subscribe to that. I'm down with the freak power. I think we are grass oriented. Yeah, grass oriented freak power. Freak powered. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But so as election day uh, grows near, the entire town and county are in a frenzy. Flyers are sent out to people that depict Hunter Thompson as a Nazi. And when these freaks start going to register to vote, they're just fucking with them and, and like harassing them and trying to keep people from registering to vote. This like most basic American right. Uh, the law and order people and the law and order sheriff want to disenfranchise all these freaks. And so this gets so bad that there's actually criminal charges filed against the county clerk because they realize this is a coordinated attempt to keep people from voting. And it gets so crazy that the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, which is like the FBI of Colorado, they come to Hunter Thompson and they say, listen, we have to tell you there are credible threats against your life. Man, so what happens next? Uh, Pretty predictably, it gets even crazier. (laughs) (laughs) And this is all before the actual election. This is all leading up to the election. You know, they tell him you're you're facing some serious death threats. And then here is how Hunter Thompson described what happens next in his book, Kingdom of Fear. At one point, Sheriff Whitmire hired a phony outlaw biker from Denver, a veteran of two years of undercover work for the feds, who boomed into town one day on a junk chopper and first threatened to dynamite my house if I didn't drop out of the race at once, then apologized for the threat when it failed and tried to hire on as my bodyguard. This guy's a real, like, uh, you know, uh, he's a real fucking mercenary. He's like, all right, I'm going to kill you. All right, well, can you hire me then? (laughs) (laughs) And then he starts, uh, this is more Hunter Thompson. Then he started spreading rumors that people on my staff were in touch with Kathy Powers and a gang of weathermen who planned to blow up all the bridges into town. So basically... They're trying to spread rumors that he's aligned with, like, wild leftist terrorists or something. Yeah, the Weather Underground were a group of, you know, call it what it is, domestic terrorists. They blew up buildings. Mm. Activists, domestic terrorists, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to foment this left-wing revolution. So, of course, they, uh, if they can't kill him, Mm. if they can't scare him, and they can't join him, this guy is like, I'm just going to discredit you in the town. Mm. Um, And then... He shows back up and he's like, hey, Hunter Thompson, do you want to buy a bunch of automatic weapons? (laughs) (laughs) The balls. Uh, Definitely a ballsy individual and more Hunter Thompson. Then he offered to stomp the shit out of anybody we aimed him at. And then he got himself busted when the city cops found a completely illegal sawed-off 20-gauge pump-action shotgun in his car, which they happened to tow away from a no-parking zone. (laughs) Ah, so that's what got him in the end. It was the parking authority. So this comes down to the night before the election. Hunter Thompson and his core team are, like, pacing the walls of this cabin I told you about outside town 
which by necessity they have basically transformed into an armed encampment. I mean, they legitimately think people might be coming to fucking kill them. Right, and and they don't even know uh, if all this shit's gonna pay off, if he's gonna win, if he's gonna lose, and what's gonna happen either way. If he's gonna live or die. So while Hunter Thompson and his campaign team and his band of merry freaks are like holed up in this in this cabin, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party of Aspen get together and say, okay, we're all going to vote for Whitmire. No shit. Because there's a Republican running, Whitmire, there's a Democrat running, mm. and then there's the Freak Power Party. Right. Uh, and they all conspire together and say, better Whitmire, who we know at least is under the control of the Republicans, than this guy who could really actually shake things up. Oh, man. You know, shame on the Democrats in this situation, because what really would have happened is the traditional parties would have split the square vote and the freak vote would have all gone to Thompson. And, you know, he had, would have had a way better chance of winning. So the next day, election day, uh, the first returns come in. Hunter Thompson is way ahead. Hunter, 182. Whitmire, 137. Rick's 10. Yeah! Right. But when all the returns are counted, uh, he lost. Whitmire, 204. Hunter, 173. I think I uh, unfortunately proved what I set out to prove. And it was more a political point in a local election that the American dream really is f- but, mm, there's a but we have a happy little epilogue for this story. Nice. Yeah. Hunter Thompson loses the Battle of Aspen, but Freak Power would win the war. Ah, how did Freak Power win the war? So in the next election cycle, the entire city council of Aspen was voted out and replaced by Joe Edwards... Oh, wow. Joe Edwards. And a whole bunch of other counterculture people. In 1976, old weed-hating Sheriff Whitmire was removed from his post amid accusations of misappropriating funds from the jail, and an ally of Hunter Thompson took over and was the sheriff for many, many years after that. Ha! Take that, Whitmore. And at least somebody who's like-minded with Thompson is actually in that post. Uh, I mean, that can only mean good things. Yeah, so Aspen, you know, alas, they never did change the name to Fat City. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The streets remain paved. (laughs) You know, I don't want to oversell the changes that happen. I don't believe there, I haven't been there in a few years, but I didn't see any stocks for dishonest drug dealers. Uh, But it is a town of 7,500 people that now has seven cannabis dispensaries in its downtown core alone. And last year, Fat City (laughs) became the first city in history to have more cannabis sales than alcohol sales in a single year. Amazing. That's that's the the happy ending to our tale of Hunter Thompson, the Battle of Aspen. And I think one of the great journalists of all time, one of the great weed dudes of all time and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an inspiration to me for sure. Truly an incredible story and a guy who had a massive impact on cannabis laws in the United States through his influence on Keith Troop and also stood as an icon for freaks everywhere, ourselves included. 
And that's it for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time. Freak power. Freak power. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, David Bienenstock, a.k.a. Bean, and Abdullah Saeed. We're produced by Cody Hoffmachel and Brigham Mosley with help from Lee George and Reyes Mendoza. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our head of post-production is Will Short. Special thanks to Gold Digger Studio. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Check out our show notes where you'll find more information about things we discussed today and links to our sponsors. And if you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends about it the next time you're smoking weed with them. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.